Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Interrobang Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Theodore, and I guess we're talking about this today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Thank you once again for listening. Normally, we would take this time to go over some of the top stories from the week. Uh, Instead, this week, we're going to jump right into our conversation with Robin Schwartz. Now, uh, to preface this discussion, it's important to note that last Friday in the United States, the Supreme Court uh, overturned the Roe versus Wade ruling, which basically in the United States uh, cemented the constitutional right to abortion 50 years ago in 1973. Um, that has now been overturned, which means that decisions regarding abortion are now going to be decided at the state level. They're no longer protected federally in the United States. So it was really important to me that we got someone on the show who could talk about this topic, but also who could bring this conversation home. One of the things that we really wanted to convey with this discussion was that although this issue might seem like something that's happening very far away and could never happen here in Canada, um, abortion rights and reproductive justice are not set in stone here in Canada. And if there's one thing that we can kind of learn from what's happened in the United States is that they're really not set in stone anywhere. Um, So what we've seen carries a lot of weight here, carries a lot of potential for discussion. And that's why I'm really happy to have someone like Robin on the show um, who has worked so hard for so many years as an abortion rights activist, as a reproductive justice advocate. And we were able to kind of just sit down and have a really interesting and open dialogue about this. So I'll preface this by just saying that this conversation is a little bit long, but I encourage you to sit down and really listen to it and to listen as well to all of the recommendations that Robin makes for reading and further education that you can do, including other podcasts that are doing this work um, all the time. So enjoy the show. Uh, Keep educating yourself. And if you are looking for some further news, you can feel free to check out our YouTube channel uh, or visit our website at theinterabing.ca. So hi, everyone. My name is Robin Schwartz. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I wear many hats in the movement. Um, I joke, uh, I had undiagnosed ADHD until last year. And so I didn't really understand that a lot of kind of my coping mechanism for that was throwing myself into this type of work, um, which is something I'm, I'm working on in terms of my own burnout. But basically, uh, I'm a historian, so I, I was working on a PhD at Western University, um, but then I started to do pro-choice and, and reproductive justice-based activism in London because I was noticing uh, some really scary trends at Western that I didn't really understand in terms of harassment um, on our campus. And um, I didn't say this at the time, but I had had an abortion at 21 in Scotland on a university exchange. So I understand so intimately the student experience of being in a city that you don't know in a medical system that you don't know and trying to get an abortion. I did that. And so part of that for me um, was like, I was in my PhD and I was trying to define myself as a, as a writer and as a scholar and as, as, as an educator mostly, because um, I really love talking to students. That's why I 
moved to Ontario from BC 10 years ago to do grad school. And so in talking to my own students and being at Western and talking to other students, um, I just felt like I needed to do something. And I knew the history of this stuff, having um, studied 20th century Canada forever. And so, yeah, I started um, at the time Pro-Choice London. That became Pro-Choice Southwestern Ontario. Um, I've stepped back from that work a little bit in recent years just because I've since moved to um, Kitchener, um, where I currently work actually for a mental health uh, nonprofit in Cambridge because the ADHD stuff, I'm really passionate about people having access to therapy. And I actually think uh, if a lot of the anti-choicers had access to therapy, maybe the world would be a lot better place. Um, but so that's what I do for my day job is communications and fundraising because I have to pay my bills and there's not very many um, paid organizer positions in feminism in Canada, which is something I kind of learned through doing the work. Um, but I also worked at Shore Center for three years, uh, two and a half years so an amount of time, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, was the project coordinator for ChoiceConnect.ca, which is the national access app. Um, I volunteer for the abortion access line through Action Canada. I'm a National Abortion Federation of Canada member. So basically just like, I've been trying to make things happen since I saw this at Western. Is the honest, like, I was like, oh my God, what is this? Why is this happening here? It makes no sense. And I was seeing this stuff happening in the US. Yeah. Trump got elected. Everyone around me was shocked, but no one seemed to know what to do. And as a historian, like that, this is kind of a, like history always is the basis for my work, whether or not that's what I am actively doing, because um, I am a, a like social historian, which means I look at race, class, gender, um, the intersections of all of these things in um, post-war Canada. And so in doing that, like for me personally, and this is my activism and my feminism, um, I think that it's important to like apply that today and like share that information. And really, um, as I was teaching students about the history of this stuff, like recognizing how uh, much important history was there in terms of it, but also like the lack of knowledge that both myself and everyone I knew had around this issue in what was basically 2017. So um, the year after Trump was elected, but like I had already been kind of thinking about it before that happened. Um, but then, yeah, I, I was a white liberal at the time and Clinton losing was the nail in the coffin for that identity for me as well, because I was like, if you can be that qualified and still not see this coming, um, I don't know. I don't know if we're in a good spot and I need your feminism to change. So here we are. That's that's the very long answer, um, because I don't know. Genuinely, when I go on other shows, I, people are like, how do you talk about who you are? Um, I don't like I can give you the one line like I'm going to sometimes I identify as abortion doula because I also support people getting abortions. Mm -hmm. um, I've driven folks to appointments in London from various places throughout southwestern Ontario and um, it's something I've taken a pause on a little bit through the pandemic just because of my own mental health and capacity. Um, but I hope to resume that uh, sometime in the next couple of years just because it is a really uh, it's really fulfilling. Like it, it feels really great. And I love um, being able to give people the experience I didn't have. 
Well, I think your your historical perspective is really interesting and and uh, valuable in this moment in particular, um, because we're looking at a decision in the United States that I think for most of us, this felt like something that was set in history. Roe v. Wade was the turning point for abortion rights in the United States. So, you know, what was last week, last Friday now, what was your first reaction? I, I'm sure many of us did a little bit see this coming with that draft opinion last month, but still, like, did you, did you really expect it to come to this? I did. I will say I, um, for me, and I've been saying this on my interviews, uh, recently, um, the Doug Ford reelection was actually a lot harder to see, uh, because my expertise outside of this, if you were like, okay, abortions are one thing and feminism, the other piece, if I'm introducing myself like at a conference or as a historian is Ontario history. Cause I, my actual PhD stuff, um, is on single moms in Ontario and divorce and social service access and just like the ways that the state supports people who have children but then don't have a husband. Essentially what happens if you don't have abortion in the 60s and 70s right. because there isn't open access, right? Yeah. I was going to say there's a connection there. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And that's, and that's kind of what drew me into the abortion work, right? Because I was already thinking about all these ideas of like problem women and like, what does it mean to like, be someone in in the 60s and 70s when all these feminist things are happening but you don't fit that mold like you aren't Gloria Steinem but like you are the person who like actually needs this movement more than anything and like how are different groups and and particularly the law in Ontario like making it harder for single moms to parent and and just like be independent because patriarchy is just so embedded into everything so knowing that, uh, I still kind of don't understand how my Karis won again in 1999. And I really don't understand how uh, Doug Ford won again. Like I lived through it. I worked my butt off. Um, I was supporting. Um, so I really believe in reproductive justice, which um, is a concept for folks who don't know uh, that comes out of the 1990s in the United States, essentially uh, it's a response to the Democrats not prioritizing the needs of marginalized uh, communities in the South for abortion rights specifically and, and the attacks that are happening in their approach to healthcare, like during the Clinton administration. And so uh, Black women in particular come up with this concept that connects social justice and like human rights to the abortion struggle. And it's essentially the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent and raise those children in safe and healthy communities. And so for me, that election loss is like so connected to that in terms of like not seeing those things happening. And I was working really hard to support a black single mom in Cambridge who is a grandma named Marjorie Knight who uh, should have won and um, just the like despondency from the citizens in Ontario has really bummed me out because um, I like especially because the news of the road leak happened the week that the election was called and so I felt really energized that week um, I'm a huge Star Wars fan it was May the 4th I was just very excited, but also like horrified 
by this leaked decision because um, I listened to Boom Lawyered, which is this awesome podcast that like breaks it down. And, and it's these two um, intersectional feminists who do that. And so um, they had been saying this was coming about a year ago when the Dobbs decision was going up because of Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh being on the court. So essentially I had been listening to this podcast um, and from honestly, actually the moment that Anthony Kennedy resigned and then we knew Brett Kavanaugh, like the window for Brett Kavanaugh was open. Um, and that resignation is to me really sketch. Like if you look into it, it, I, we don't understand why Anthony Kennedy resigned then during the Trump years. Cause he could have stayed on and, uh, his legacy was really gay marriage. And so like, anyways, there's some shady stuff around the Kavanaugh appointment is shady in my opinion. And I think we all saw that. And so, um, yeah, I was really fired up that first week of May and I was ready to work, but also dealing with significant mental health issues myself and various things. So it was a month of just like pushing and pushing and pushing. And so I think that for me personally, last week, uh, like I was checking every day at 10 a.m. to see if that decision was coming because I followed the court that closely because that's how big of a law nerd I am. And so it coming on Friday was unsurprising. Like like Friday makes sense, right? Uh, it's the end of the week. I was on um, one of London's radio shows and the guy compared it to the Theo Fleury trade, which uh, I'm not, I'm not a hockey person anymore. My dad is. And so I understood that in terms of like, it's something you do when the media is on vacation or it's a weekend and putting it on a Friday when everyone's already exhausted at the end of the week means that there's less energy for protests right away. Uh, there's less energy for the media to be there because they've already got their stories kind of planned out. Um, but I also think that the decision was very mean, like, like if you actually read it, Sam Alito, the stuff he says about, um, bodily autonomy and just like privacy and, and how this decision should have never even happened is devastating. And like, it is a malicious decision. Like it is very ideological. And, um, I know like commentators are all saying that, but like, I'm like, yeah, I can like double say that as like a historian who like literally like that's what I do is go back and read decisions and comments like, like most of my um, PhD research is reading how Pierre Elliott Trudeau like talked about divorce and then how that actually ends up showing up and, and all these things. And so, um, yeah, it, you're right. Like it's, it's, it is something of history, but it's also like, I feel like we've been living through that and, and that's it. And so I don't know if I have much more shock and surprise left because the Doug Ford decision was just so terrible. Like I'm so depressed about that. Like, and I'm going to be mad for like four years. Like I have so many questions and thoughts and things that I think about all the time related to all these issues. Cause it's like the abortion stuff is connected in terms of like the rise of, more right-wing politics and and what I would classify as like borderline fascism it's happening because of things like social media and so no the answer to you Hannah is no they didn't live through the same last two years and that's what's scary is we have individualized our society so much within this corporate market system that someone 
I had so many people tell me at the doors like, oh, well, he was just like trying his best and like it could be worse and like all these things and and the anger then towards the federal government or vice versa. Like it's just our system was designed this way. It was never meant to be for the people. It was always about protecting the interests of a select few white men, <laughs> Sir John A. Macdonald. Um, but uh, very much um, we are seeing the like long-term, like just like nihilism and, and despondence because of it, because it is designed to make people feel like they don't have a choice and it's hard. I want to talk a little bit about these, these long-term also long-term initiatives, because I think the, the, the anti-choice movement in the United States, this was a generation that conservatives spent trying to, trying to accomplish what they've, what they've just accomplished. And I think, yeah, you know, like so much of what I hear you hear in Canada and folks here will kind of fight back and say, there's no, no possible way this could ever happen here. It would take decades of, of work to possibly reach a point where abortion would be deemed constitutionally illegal in Canada. So I, I guess the question is, if they could play the long game in the United States, what's stopping them from doing it here? There's like, there's nothing. The honest answer is the people. Like, so I would say um, a couple things. So the I definitely think the Canadian system, because it was designed so, and I haven't said this yet, actually. So my master's, uh, folks listening, is in this issue. It's in Canadian-American relations. That's why I actually ended up in London, because uh, prior to a really terrible dean coming to us from U of T and cutting all of social sciences, cool stuff, uh, there was a program at Western called American Studies, and they had set up a really cool master's, and I was in a cohort of 13 people um, and it was absolutely fantastic. We had, because um, we it was funded by an external donor. Um, and so I, that's why I ended up at Western. Uh, I had a fully funded master's and I was very lucky for that. Um, it's why I moved from BC. But um, in my undergraduate, I was always fascinated by this question of like Ken in the US because I had studied um, on a rotary exchange to France for a year. And when you're abroad, if you're Canadian, you are often drawn to Americans because our cultures are so similar in like those international spaces. And that's been true of me on both. I did a second exchange, as I mentioned earlier, to Scotland when I was there. Um, it was actually an American who like was helping me a little bit through my abortion, my my ex and her, um, my friend Julia. Um, so it, it was very common for me in this kind of my early 20s when I was going around and, and kind of learning who I was um, to have questions about the differences between the two countries and and also just like the U.S.'s role in the world. So um, most of my undergrad, I took courses on U.S. foreign policy, Canadian foreign policy in relation to the U.S. I actually wasn't a huge Canadian history nerd until my second year of my Ph.D. as I am now. Like I really started in American stuff and then did my master's on Canadian and American culture at Expo 67. So um, I think that the cultures of the two countries are different. But part of what's really hard about answering this question is I basically ended my 12-month master being like, I don't think there's actually that much difference between the two countries. Like, I don't know how to measure this. Like, basically, as an academic being like, 
I read one thing and then I can read something else that completely contradicts it. So like thinking about like, I have very little in common with someone in Louisiana, but I have a ton in common with someone in the state of Michigan, a ton. We are basically the same people, like literally like there's like who decided and, and learning about the imagined borders. Like that's literally like all I did that year was talk about the two countries. And, and so in doing that, I learned how almost stagnant um, Canadian political systems are. And that was set up very intentionally because Canada's constitution, the, the first constitution, the British North America Act is written in 1867, which is seven years after the start of the US Civil War. So that's 1860. And so when we're thinking about these things and, and before that, we know that Upper Canada is created because of the American Revolution. 1792, we've got all of these things happening where essentially, um, and, and this is not how it's taught, but I think that when I apply my like feminist cultural lens to it, it's like how I my students enjoy that I say these things. Um, the people who weren't like cool enough for the revolution or also weren't in with the people who won the revolution, i.e. like you're fighting and then in political spaces and then George Washington and his friends, they are the ones who end up getting the most power. Well, all of the people who didn't get that power, they came to Canada. And so their views are very much shaped by the idea that those raucous Americans, they're so much when like that's actually not true in terms of like we know what the founding fathers in the united states were i'm saying that the myths of what canada is came out of that Mm -hmm. so the myth of canada is civil um this is all in a really great book that i read in my undergrad um by daniel coleman who is a english scholar um called white civility um and essentially like so a lot of what I think about is identity and, and it's very hard and very complex. And like part of why I get this is because of my ADHD, I think, where I can see all of these things and they kind of swirl together. Um, and one day I end up writing something good, <laughs> but essentially it's, I, to answer your question, like, could it happen here? Yes. And no, the answer is Uh, there are anti-abortion groups that are currently organizing to try and change the Canadian political system the way that their friends and family on the other side of the border, because what I just told you is also a story of immigration and connection. Mm. The idea that Canadians and Americans are different, well, so many of us have friends and family there. So again, we we are imposing these differences and not taking ownership of the ways that we are the same as Canadians in the ways that we are racist, the ways that we have problematic systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but our systems have not changed and, and evolved the same way in the last 50 years that the um, American system has. And I think that that's intentional in that same thing. We see all this aggressive stuff happening in the U.S., Our politicians double down and say, well, we're pro-choice and nothing is going to change on that. That's not action. But that is the Canadian way (laughs) to say one thing and then and then maybe a little bit. And like we did have a time period um, where things like Roe versus Wade impacted us getting better services, like better access to the American civil rights movement 
directly and and the ways that Medicare is being pushed for in the 60s directly helps and supports Tommy Douglas and the cause for healthcare in Canada. So it's like they're very much tied together. And I often like to think of the two countries as a mirror of each other, where like you look in the mirror and it's you're not actually seeing yourself, right? Like you are, but you aren't. You're seeing a vision of it. And I think that that's actually probably the best metaphor in terms of stopping what I would classify as Canadian exceptionalism because, yeah, there's a group called Right Now. Um, and that's actually how I got into this because the politics stuff is my interest. Like you can tell I'm very knowledgeable around this stuff and and the activism actually came after. Like all of this stuff I just told you, I would have told you 10 years ago when I moved to this province. Um but what's changed is that I've learned how much of it is still in the present day because that used to feel like, oh, well, these were all fights that happened, right? And um, I like to say that I've never lived in a Canada where abortion was illegal because I was born in 1989. Mm. But because of the success of folks out of the US and, and really the anti-abortion movement is a North America-wide movement. I think that's important for folks to understand our Folks have money and connections there. They go to the U.S. to train. They are trying to bring tactics from there here. And they just don't have as much money or power yet. Mm. Again, that is, and that is really like, they are doing a classic, like Bernie Sanders style organizing of like trying to turn every single riding association. That's how they got Sam Oosterhoff, um, the MPP for Niagara West, um, elected in he was actually elected in a by-election not even like he was in government before Doug Ford folks like he he with that election and that by-election is what actually like raised red flags for me personally because I had seen all of the U.S. stuff around trap laws and uh which trap stands for therapeutic regulation of abortion provider law so the laws that were happening during the second Obama administration after the Tea Party had taken control of most of the Senates across the United States to do things like you can't have an abortion near elementary school, like like no specific stupid laws that are literally like there's an abortion provider 200 meters away. OK, to within 250 meters, you can't like like stuff like that that was happening and then i saw this group right now which is was led by two conservatives um vote in essentially rick dystra who used to be the head of the pc party of ontario was running for that seat in a like like not the by-election itself like he him and sam Oosterhof were both running to be the pc person and somehow even though dystra was the former president of the pc party and should have won Sam Oosterhof with the anti-choicers had mobilized enough support to make it so that he became the candidate. And then because that seat is always conservative, he won. Mm. And that is what the anti-choicers did in the U.S. is they went into conservative places and basically pushed out what they would call like, or in Canada, we would call like red Tories, i.e. people who are conservative, but so socially liberal, which sorry, I that's not a thing, but anyways, um, enjoy your, your contradictions folks. Uh, but, but essentially like there is a difference between a say Marona Ambrose, who was the conservative party, uh, leader 
uh, interim leader for a while. And I know she was involved in the decision to bring the abortion pill to Canada when she was in the Harper government. So there's a difference between her and someone like Sam Oosterhoff. And there is, and we cannot, that's the other thing is we have to have that nuance and space as well, because just attacking the other side is also not going to work. Like that's one thing I've learned. <coughs> Sorry. So intimately in the last, um, couple years is that the call out culture and the like these people are bad towards other conservatives is just going to send us down the same path as the United States like it's it's really it, it we're we're at a very critical time and I look at something like the Ottawa convoy and the number of people who were normal like like 70 percent of Canadians did not oppose what they were doing yeah that's a scary number. And that's not saying that they thought they were okay. Like, it's not that they're there. It's not that they think they should be burning things. Like, like, it's not that they don't, but it's that they understand the anger behind it. That was what the poll was. And so that's really scary. But what that says to me is that 70% of Canadians are essentially like that disconnected from what is actually happening to uh, yeah, it, it's it's fascism, but that's it's scary. It's it's really really scary. I want to talk a little bit about the kind of anti-abortion rhetoric you mostly hear in Canada. Um, and you're talking a little bit about how these groups kind of uh, take notes from the United States. Um, but I, I know there are subtle differences, right? Like I find anti-abortion um, activists here are a little bit less overtly religious, perhaps, um, in Canada. And I mean, quite famously here in London, we had those rather horrific pamphlets that were kind of going around. So what kind of tactics do you mostly see in Canada? Yeah, so I, um, so the the pamphlets that were going around um, were from the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, which is the group that, um, so they were founded in, I think, 2006-ish, like around there. Um, and they are the, they are one of the first ones who are trying to bring more of the violent fetus images to Canada that we see in the United States. So I would say that like they're motivated by religion. That's um, their communications head is Jonathan Mamarin. And part of why we saw that in London is his, like one of his houses is outside of London. Um, and so they are often doing work in the city. Um, I've heard that his either sister or wife like talks at London Catholic high school sometimes like this is like, and these folks are extreme. Um, I actually went undercover one time to hear them and get their book, which is written by his sister, Justina. Um, so to be, to be frank, um, I know that a lot of what they do is called abortion apologetics. And that is the method that has worked really successfully in the United States for the last 20 years in terms of co-opting human rights language. Um, and, and part of what scared me was I was seeing this pop up in Canada at Western specifically. And um, the book that I just held up to show you stuck is actually based on testing that they did at Western with students, because essentially what they do is 
they they modeled it after their American partners, but they they all go to Florida every year on spring break. And they set up in Florida this giant display of those fetuses. Like imagine like like meters high walls of them. And they have a whole wall of them, like people standing in front of them. And it's it's on the way to some kind of spring break thing in Florida because I haven't I am not the type of person who would ever want to do that type of thing, but I know a lot of people at Western do. So you go down and you party for like a week. So this is part of the gauntlet of you walking to go somewhere for a party. That's, that is a thing that they do. And they send folks down. Like I have seen Western Lifeline, the club on campus, advertising this as like an opportunity for learning for students. So like, cause they, they ha- either have you fundraise or they will help you pay to go to learn basically this skill. And so when I've heard them talk, they joke like, they're like, well, if one conversation to try and convince people that abortion is a human rights violation goes wrong, you got another 30 coming that like, because it's just conversation after conversation after conversation. And so I would say that what has shifted, and this is like, they are trying to get more and more people doing this in Canada um, over the last, like, since I started tracking them in 2015, 2016, um, they are growing um, in terms of like, they have new sites in Calgary and Winnipeg and like, they try and hire people in different cities to essentially coordinate what I would call like unsuspecting high school students who like think that they're trying to do something good to change the world. And because in their high school, in whatever Catholic school or usually it's private schools, um, in other provinces, because in BC, um, if you are in a religious school, like it's not funded the same way through public education. But but essentially, like if you, for example, um, like I know where I'm from, which is an extremely anti-abortion community, Kelowna, the Kelowna Christian School like has a whole thing where they do this. And like it's a part of like that whole high school, elementary school, like where they even will like send kids to the March for Life in Ottawa. So it's like it's essentially an intergenerational thing where like I I often push back on folks who are like well they just have to die like that's not actually true because what is happening is at the same time that many other Gen Z are getting activated about social issues um the ways that like like this is something that in Christian spaces in the United States they are being essentially propagandized to believe that abortion is a human rights violation. And we saw that at Western, like that's what their poster that they put up, uh, like uh, when they have their clubs table, it says like, is abortion a human rights violation? Yes, it is, think about it. And And essentially they're trying to get you to agree that life begins at conception, but by like asking you questions, like they'll ask you like, well, but is this a baby? Or like, like this whole book is just all their questions that they ask and then like, um, stories of when they worked or when they didn't. Um, and so that is one group that it, so that is one group that is working. Um, but the other side of things is in the political space. Um, I think that there are folks who are using these groups to like get more volunteers, the same, like essentially like higher level political minds, um, someone like Doug Ford, who, says 
you know, I, I can agree to half their stuff or just like be happy in those spaces. Um, the same way that Donald Trump did, right? Like Donald Trump is not anti-abortion. Sorry, everyone. We have like multiple like evidence over the, over his entire lifetime of him being like pro-abortion. And the honest answer is he's a rich man. He's definitely paid for a ton of abortions. So, but, but him being like, it's like, but I agree with you that like the evangelical stream of things, like Canadians are just not as open with their religion. And I think it shows up differently here, but most of the communities that I know that are very extreme in Canada. Um, so in my experience, Guelph, Cambridge and Kelowna, which are like the three kind of places near where I've lived. Um, it is often communities that have higher levels of church going and higher levels like the Cambridge where I work, they have a fetus window downtown for Cambridge right to life. It's terrible. Like it literally says women regret abortion downtown, like near yes. the pizza place. I've seen this yeah. messaging, like the, the women who will just go out with big signs that say like, I regret my abortion. So very, um, and I think we have less of that in Canada. Like that's yeah. what in Canada I'm seeing. Like, I often say that it's like 20 people who are far extremists, who are friends with these folks in the U.S. who want to bring this here. And then a lot of unsuspecting white women who are privileged, whether it's church going women who like they make it their cause at their Catholic church, which is patriarchy in action. Right. Like these folks. I, I also push back on the idea that we can just like say, well, these people can't exist in our community because that's not actually a path forward like that. It is not a path forward for me to be mean to these folks like I I this group like the CCBR, they are actual extremists who like support um active like violent extremists who have tried to like bomb abortion clinics in Canada like they're not safe, but I'm talking more like for example, the issue of crisis pregnancy centers, which um, we know like London has a crisis pregnancy center. Um, there are places across Canada that are like, if you are pregnant and scared, come here. And most of those are nonprofits one, run by like one or two women, often part-time, who actually do care a lot about babies. And so to say to them, because I know that the Liberal Party of Canada is looking at taking away their like tax status from crisis pregnancy centers, like that's a thing that's come up. And I've had arguments within like my friends in the movement because there's folks who are like, they cause harm, like you come here. And, and I'm like, I agree. I am not saying that going there if you're looking for an abortion and them telling you like, love your baby is not causing harm. But I'm saying that more harm will be done by forcing all of them to close because, sorry, if you are poor and marginalized and need access to baby clothes or what have you, unless we're going to set up alternatives, guys, you're taking away that from the people who need it most. Right. And two, what do you say to all those women who have made that their whole life work? Yeah. Are they bad people? Yeah. That's a, that's a hard, right? Like, like, we can't just wish this away or hope that, like, like it's the same as having, not, not exactly, but, like, anti-racism conversations, right? Like, the idea that, like, 
everyone is a bad person is not true in the actual way that we need to be doing those that work. Mm -hmm. Saying that the problem is that it often falls to people like me who are queer and neurodivergent or like single, like, like it's not the people with the most privilege who are actively pushing themselves to like do this labor. And I think that within feminist spaces, especially we need to have a conversation about um, what is being prioritized and why by places like Women and Gender Equity Canada, because, um, yeah, say like people are currently flying from other provinces to London, Ontario to access abortion procedures. That is a thing that happens. This was going to be one of my questions, you know, that especially in, in the in the dialogue of Canadians kind of comparing themselves to the United States access to abortion is an issue here, particularly for Indigenous communities, folks living in remote regions, and even folks who are living in traditionally more Catholic provinces like New Brunswick and PEI. So, you know, when we're comparing ourselves, it's not like we don't have our own issues here. Well, exactly. And um, it's, it's very much, again, like going back to that history, um, like the idea that all women in Canada were somehow pro-choice in 1988 is also a myth. Right. And the idea that women weren't political in the way that we push for these things is like, I get really mad at the women in politics people because I'm like, who are you putting in there? And like, how are they helping me? Cause I don't see it. And further um, I would be remiss. So um, for folks who want to know more about uh, like PEI in particular, because I think that that province is a really interesting case because after 1988, essentially what had happened and, and for people who are interested in, and want a nice light summer read, actually, normally when I, I'm like, here's a light read, 400 pages. It's I'm a historian, I swear. Um, I'm that TA sometimes, uh, but the book, uh, no choice, the 30 year fight for abortion on PEI, uh, by Kate McKenna. Um, it's really good. It was published by Fernwood publishing a couple of years ago, but basically PEI doesn't have abortion until 2011 because white women had organized to remove it from their hospital. Like it was, it was not like men are obviously like, I, I definitely think the worst anti-choicers in Canada and the folks who are like the mate, the patriarchs of the movement, like Jonathan Van Maren are men, the, yeah. the most violent extremists. Um, but like, so Catherine Kalbeck, who was the um, premier of PEI after that, she's the first woman who's premier of PEI. She was the one of the people responsible for this. So for me to then have to, like, uh, folks know uh, if you're in London how annoyed I get at Kate Graham with her stuff around that. Like, that's why, guys. Like, in case, like, Kate, if you listen to this, this is why I find you infuriating. Because you literally have platformed someone who has caused active harm in my life and other people's lives in saying that it's, like, well, they don't get second chances in politics. Like what? Like that is not helpful research and it's really not okay. And um, I feel the same way about Christy Clark in British Columbia, who was the premier when I was living there. Like it's just, yeah, there's definitely access issues and there there's issues where um, it, I often feel like we got it in Toronto and Vancouver and then everyone was like, okay, we're done. And like that, 
and I get it. Like those, the feminists who did the work in the seventies and eighties did everything right. Like they, they, this movement was in my opinion, the best feminist movement in the Western world at the time. Like the U S absolutely messed up and allowed this 50 year sort of gap to have where like the, the ways that reproductive justice came to be was because they were not happy with um, how white feminist leaders were prioritizing certain issues and, and respectability politics over the lives of folks on the front lines. But yeah, it's one of those things where like London, especially um, because that hospital is just so important um, and, and really just by chance that like one doctor, Dr. Fraser Fellows set that clinic up to be a good abortion clinic up to the full gestational limit. He was friends with Dr. Morgenthaler. Like these are OBs who literally gave their lives and careers for doing this. We're not, it's, it's not happening in the same way. Um, even though I know that there are many great abortion providers, I think that um, our political leadership has just not been there for us. And then um, yeah, I, we've had so many cuts in other parts of our healthcare that it's made it so that this is never prioritized. And that's a really big problem. So I guess looking forward now, because whether it's looking at that, that stagnant, um, state of Canadian politics or in the United States where, you know, we just, we had 50 years of row. Are we looking at another 50 years without row or what, like, where do you see this going next? I, I, I heard someone say that, like, either we just live with this now or there's going to be a, a serious movement that's going to come up against this. Like, do you see it going in either direction? I, so the honest answer, Hannah, is I don't know. And that's horrifying yeah. for me, because as you can tell, I think a lot about the past and I, I often take comfort in the past in some ways um, because I'm like, oh, well, that happened. And so we can like get past it. But um, a lot of what's really uncertain in terms of this issue in the U.S. is that because it's gone back to the state level and because so many state legislatures um, spurred on by the Federalist Society, which for folks who don't know, the Federalist Society is the far-right group that is essentially trying to enforce family values through the law and like Clarence Thomas is a member like all of the justices you hate connected to them and what they do is they give lawmakers bills like like lawmakers aren't writing the bills themselves they give them a bill and say try this one around this fetal heartbeat try this thing and so there's been this rush since Brett Kavanaugh was appointed to be the state legislature that overturns row. So that's happened now. But that does not mean that we know how all these laws are going to intersect. Like they overlap and it is a giant mess, a giant ball of yarn knotted into each other of like ways that the legal... So people are going to be harmed by that. And that's already happening. I'm sure you've seen on online where there are um, states where some doctors are like, can I perform this thing around miscarriage? And that's a problem. Um, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler's son was on CBC two nights ago, and there's a really good clip. Folks should look at it. And he talks about how his dad would have just kept going and refused to follow the law. So I hope that some doctors will just keep going because that's what Morgenthaler did. He was arrested multiple times in the 70s for performing illegal abortions in Montreal, but courts refused to convict him because 
they knew that it was ridiculous. They knew that this doctor was just like doing what people wanted and doing it more safely because that was when he was piloting the techniques that doctors around the world use still today for earlier surgical abortions. And so, um, but saying that, couple things for folks to think about in the next two years or so. And that's where I feel comfortable talking about. Um, one is the fall elections, obviously. I know the Democrats are already talking about that. I don't know what's going to happen. I, like many others, are very disappointed that we're being told to vote again when they already have a majority. And so my hope is that in the next six months, some really significant pressure is put on the White House to do something like expand the courts because they can. Like there are things that people are calling for that are radical because this is a radical moment and the left needs to write. Like we need to expand the Supreme Court. We need to declare this court illegitimate. But Joe Biden, as folks may or may not know, appointed Clarence Thomas in the early 90s. He is the reason that this happened. Clarence Thomas is if you look at his career and his opinions, he is the one who has been pushing the court this way. When Antony Scalia is long considered one of the first, like like he was the first kind of Federalist Society like champion on the Supreme Court. And a lot of what he did was around gun rights. Folks will know, like he's the one who redefined the Second Amendment to mean like the right to bear arms because it didn't mean that prior to an opinion that he wrote. And there's some really, again, great legal nerd shit <laughs> Boom Lawyer, and if you want to learn more, it's a great podcast. Um, very funny. Uh, sincerely, like I love it. I would not recommend it if I if it didn't make me laugh through the worst times. Uh, but uh so that Thomas Biden was the chair of the Senate Commit Judiciary Committee when this happened. He was the one who messed up the Anita Hill comp like stuff yeah. and allowed Clarence Thomas to be confirmed. Um, another podcast to listen to, since folks listening to this love podcast, Anita Hill's <laughs> Getting Even. Uh, Anita Hill is doing an amazing show about all of this stuff. But so that's the first one is like, we, what will happen between now and the fall elections? Right. I don't know what the ground game looks like under Joe Biden in that um, the ground game sucked under Obama. And so if it's the same ground game and the same people leading it will not be good. We will lose the House. We will lose this. We will lose that. And um, the Democrats in the White House own that for not providing the uh, basically policy and reasons for people to vote to support the party. Like you need to show people why it matters by doing something, not just saying to vote. Second, next presidential case. <laughs> Uh, if a Republican becomes president, I think there will be a national abortion ban by 2025. Mm. Yeah, that is my, uh, and that is not me who called that. That is boom lawyered again. Like I, I do not pretend to be this sage worthy, um, mm. in the American context, but in Canada, here's where my head is headed. Mm. Um, our healthcare system is in crisis right now. And we need to do everything we can to stop it getting privatized. Same thing with our schools. Um, and I think things are going to get a lot worse over the next five years before they get better because we haven't done the work to we, it, it, to be frank, the Trudeau liberals own a lot of this and I don't know how to get them to stop being the U.S. Democrats. And it's really upsetting. Christopher, you mean? 
Christopher Freeland is Hillary Clinton in 1995, and I'd like her to wake up. Um, the the other thing, though, is the Conservative Party of Canada is currently in a leadership race. And I don't believe that the anti-abortion movement here has the same legislative ability, both just due to priorities, because of how bad everything else is here. Like, I'm sorry, but and our parliament just being so dysfunctional, like even in Ontario, you look at what Doug Ford does, like they aren't good at their jobs, um, though they've had four years of learning it. And so things are about to get a lot worse because they're going to be a lot better and a lot faster. Um, so we have to oppose them. But we also need to understand that um, both Pierre Polyev, who is probably going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and more importantly, Dr. Leslin Lewis, who is one of the worst anti-choicers to ever run for Conservative Party leadership, who is a Black woman, who is the MP currently for Helen Norfolk, who believes all of the things and is connected to the American anti-abortion movement, believes all of those same things. That is scary. And we need to talk about what healthcare in Canada looks like that centers the needs of honest, like pregnant people, particularly indigenous communities. Um, if the government of Canada really cared about this issue. Um, I know uh, when I was working on the abortion caravan project, I actually was one of the people who wrote the decolonized healthcare piece. My name's not on it just because we like, it was a collective voice, but um, I talked to MLA, Manitoba MLA, uh, Nahani Fontaine, who is an indigenous leader. She's fantastic. And she's done work on this issue in Manitoba for a long time because Manitoba has so many Northern Reserve communities with bad healthcare access. And oftentimes, Indigenous women uh, need to leave their home communities to give birth today. So that's something that we could change right now if we had the political will. Right. We could build birth centers. Uh, the federal government is in charge uh, responsible for healthcare on reserve. And so I don't really understand why, uh, for example, uh, medication abortion right now is only like, like nurses, unless like it's very specific, can't dispense that medication. And so that was something that Nahani told me she wanted was that like, if I was talking about like, what could indigenous communities, what could we do? Like, Abortion is a really stigmatized thing in many indigenous communities because of colonization and like issues of like children being ripped from communities and like those emotions that you would experience. I obviously cannot speak on behalf of someone with that, but like I can't imagine making choices around my own healthcare and like whether or not I have children within the context of like my community being constantly like violated by the state of Canada and so like it's not just that we need to provide that access it like we need to make sure that like indigenous communities are empowered to do this themselves and like that there are midwives and that that is something that we like invest in heavily and that is literally like if we did that right now I think that that would be significant in terms of 
prioritizing this in a way that someone like Leslie Lewis never would because she doesn't care. And her priority is more crisis pregnancy centers. Like she's talked about that. She supports them. She loves crisis pregnancy centers and how like that's an adoption, adoption as an alternative, like, like those are her beliefs. And she's, this is her second time running because she's connected to that anti-abortion group. Like they want her in because they know that Justin Trudeau debating a black woman over this, he will get destroyed. Yeah. Anytime a a conservative movement can, can have like a token figure as their spokesperson, right. It it just, it, it pokes holes in what they think the liberal agenda is, right. Like, well, it's about that nuance, right. Like, cause that's what liberalism does is it makes identity so flat and it then is like, I'm supposed to feel good that Christian Freeland is our deputy prime minister when like I see her representing every single white woman who's ever hurt or bullied me. Like, it's just like, it's, it's baffling. Like it's, it's like that I'm supposed to be proud and happy about that. I think, you know, it just to circle back to what we were talking about, like if we are going to sort of um, just, just define ourselves as Canadians in opposition to the United States, this could be an opportunity, right. To, to center ourselves in this conversation in a way that is forward thinking so that we don't end up in yes. this kind of situation where something that we thought was precedent has now been just by a select few people decided no no more well and and i will say for folks it is happening here because yeah. um where a lot of these groups have turned their attention recently is to trans rights in canada and yeah. if you aren't following this, you need to understand that multiple school boards across the province have been attacked in the last six months with concerns around various things where, um, like my school board here last night in Waterloo Region had a debate again around critical race theory, which again is coming up from the U.S., but it's it's far-right groups saying like, like that's how this started it. Like these things, it's the same, the parents who are in the schools in the U S talking about trans issues and are the same parents who are then out there harassing people with abortion. Like, and so I, what I've seen is, is those groups that were harassing us with the fetus images in London, essentially recognizing that maybe that's not, shouldn't be their priority right now in terms of what the public wants. And seeing this trans stuff with parents who are scared because their kid is already falling behind and the school years have been so hard that somehow another child getting seen and heard and loved in a classroom is taking something away from their family values. Mm -hmm. And that rhetoric should raise an alarm for you if you don't, and if you don't understand that, You need to get that, like, these groups have their own newsletters. They have their own media. They are not living in the same world as you. And so that parent might have gotten emailed something from her mom who, like, has been involved in this church forever. And misinformation, as we know, is circulating constantly around everything because Facebook has created a living hell for all of us. Um, And so (laughs) as a result... That's where it's showing up here. And so we have to be very much like, like we need to stand in solidarity. We can't, like, I think you're right that like part of what I would like to see is um, a lot more like proactive work. So like what I just talked about with the election was so frustrating because Mm -hmm. everyone knew it was coming. So like 
where, what, like everyone's like, I'm so busy. What? Like you knew it was coming. Like this is like this isn't the federal election last summer that was just like surprise. Right. We now are gonna waste a year of your time, Robin. And I was like, oh great, yeah, that means that we don't get money for another six months. So happy uh, that that's what you've decided to do. Um, and so like showing up with local issues, whatever that is, um, I think that like the end connecting with other people in your community and the types of things that they're working around. Um, and then in London in particular, the city council elections coming up and yes. um, London- there's a great Twitter account that's counting down every yeah. day until the next municipal election in London. So even, even yeah. I keep an eye on that because it's good. Yeah. These local good, but, everything. But folks know that like because of the graphic images, our city council is one of the only ones in Canada that's passed a bylaw around this. And right. I definitely want to give a shout out to Katie Dean and the Viewer Discretion Legislation Coalition. Katie is a friend of mine, but we work on this issue and from different perspectives. And that's actually very healthy. Mm-hmm. Like that's like we need to build a movement and spaces where like we can disagree and then we don't run away and not talk and start something else like we need to have healthy disagreements in our movements in our spaces and we need to learn how to do that because that's what the other side is doing they're doing all of that behind closed doors and then they're coming out with one message one voice yeah this is this is something where it's an opportunity to learn about that history because we actually do like it's our organizers are all like 80 now, but all of the people from the abortion caravan are, many of them are still alive. Judy Rebick and I talk, uh, Judy Rebick for folks who don't know, was the woman who saved Dr. Morgenthaler from the garden shears. She's one of the leaders of the movement from the eighties, um, and longtime socialist feminist, like founder of the, um, rabble, um, later, like she's, she's been around doing this work like abortion is what she gets credit for because obviously like this was a really big thing that they did and i i can't be more like grateful and and proud to be a part of that legacy but like she does everything like judy was involved in encampment stuff in toronto in the 70s she has a memoir it's called heroes in my head if folks are looking for like an accessible summer read like genuinely where she talks about all of this and um it's just so beautiful. Like it's, it's, and she's done so much over the years. And that's true of all of the women who like most of them uh, from the abortion caravan, because they're now older are in long-term care fights. So they're, they're working around elderly issues. And so like, this is a lifelong thing, guys. Like this is not just like, we're going to show up and it's going to be done. Like, I think that we naively like I definitely grew up with that I I've been listening to a lot of like 90s throwback stuff lately I as many of us have in the millennials have and uh I think that we grew up feeling very optimistic because the cold war was over quote unquote whatever that actually means uh please read my comps 30 page essays on how that's not true now um and but like like we grew up thinking and the internet was here, like all of these new and yeah. exciting things. Just a new and millennia think, in general. Like, the, yeah, you know, it is very optimistic. Yeah. And I think that if you look at what happened a hundred years ago, that was actually true last time too. Right. And so yeah. we're actually living through like the worst part of this century right now. I like, and not that things aren't going to get worse because of climate change, but just in terms <laughs> of like, 
the change. Like we're living through tumultuous change and change is hard no matter what it is. Uh, like I freaking hate change. My ADHD does not like it. I like go in and go into a comatose for like two weeks. Um, because it's just difficult. It's hard to wrap your brain around. Um, but like thinking of it that way, like I'm trying to, I, she tells herself it's a marathon. (laughs) Um, I definitely pushed myself really, really, really hard these last four years because I saw this 2022 Ontario election as such an important moment. And I, I am now personally like taking some time this summer to like reassess and, and try and figure out what to do next. Um, because yeah, it's going to be a long fight and, um, it's something where I'm really happy folks are excited and energized, but I also think um, we need to, to be mindful of, of those sorts of things. So I'm extremely grateful for the work that you do and, uh, for getting the chance to chat with you today as well. Um, thank you for being here on the show and for talking not only to me, but to all of our students who are listening to, um, I really wanted to bring this conversation home. And, mm-hmm. um, I think you did such a good job of that. So thank you so much. Well, thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Interabang podcast. As always, you can catch up with every episode on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with all things Fanshawe. For the Interabang, I'm Hannah Theodore.